Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. Talk easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, as we close out 2023, we look back on the year that was. Before we head into 2024, I wanted to revisit some of my favorite passages from the past 12 months. Not an easy year, but these are all subjects that stayed with me, that I kept coming back to either for the jokes or the wisdom, or sometimes, if we were lucky, a bit of both. This was objectively, as I said last week, a pretty difficult year, especially in Hollywood, as the industry faced a pretty historic double labor strike between the actors and writers and the studios. As such, there was about three, four months there where we stood in solidarity with the unions and didn't air any episodes with the kinds of people that typically come on this program. And so in that time, the strike forced a lot of us who make podcasts to either A, go on hiatus, B, release a series of reruns, or C, get really, really creative on the booking front. Thankfully, we have an incredible team here, and uh, we chose mostly option C. And as such, uh, we landed on this next guest, Sam Sanders. Formerly at NPR, Sanders is the co-host of Vibe Check, and really one of my favorite culture critics 
working today. When Sanders and I sat down, it was in the middle of the strike, and uh, he did his damnedest to make sense of some of the biggest stories from the summer. Let's take a listen. These past few months have been a lot. It's been a lot. It's been a lot. It's like, been a lot. It's been maybe too much. Although some of the stuff that has felt like too much has been an excellent exercise in indulgence. Mm-hmm. When I think of the three biggest pop stories of this year right now, it's Beyonce going on tour, mm-hmm. it's Taylor Swift going on tour, and it's Barbie taking over the world. And all three of those things were just like supersized as pop culture moments. And I feel like it's too much, but also we needed it. We have been in lockdown <laughs> for years. And so part of why you see people losing their minds at Beyonce shows, at Taylor shows, it's because we didn't have that for a few years. Mm-hmm. We're so happy to have it again. I even think of the movies in general. There was a lot of talk when the pandemic was shutting theaters down. Will it ever come back? Will we ever do it? And then Top Gun Maverick comes out and everyone's like, is this a fluke or are we back? And seeing Barbie succeed so soundly, it's like, yes, movies are back. So to all of this, I'm like, pop culture is back. I had a couple of those on my list. Why don't we just jump in? Let's do it. Now that a whole lot of people have seen Barbie and Oppenheimer. Yeah. And now that the Barbenheimer phenomenon has settled just a little bit. Yeah. It's calmed down just a little bit. Yeah. Where are you at on these two films, respectively? Why don't we start with Oppenheimer? I go to Christopher Nolan Films for amazing and spectacular visual effects. This sounds like you're running for office Uh as moviegoer. Yeah. And I was very surprised that this Christopher Nolan film felt like it had an Aaron Sorkin script. There was so much dialogue, which was delivered brilliantly and beautiful by the actors in the film, but I wanted some more of the Christopher Nolan special effects wizardry. Mm-hmm. I just don't go to Christopher Nolan for dialogue. Are you a Nolan guy? No. But the ones that I have enjoyed from him, I like the effects. What are your favorites? Oh, gosh. Um, I actually saw Tenet during pandemic. And I was like, oh, wow, interesting. Still don't understand it. No one does. What's the other one? Not Inception. Was it Inception? Mm-hmm. It was him? Inception. Is Which Batman movie was him? It was all three of them. Yes. Those are great. <laughs> Those are great. (laughs) But yeah, it's like when I think of what I loved about all those movies, it wasn't the dialogue. Mm -hmm. That said, they do the work. You know, it is a technical feat. Kudos to him. I think my thoughts on Barbie are, gosh, super, 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 super fun. As soon as you get in any way analytical about that script and that plot past the one-on-one level, you're like, "Ah." what do you mean? So many movies are built on this idea of a hero's journey. Joseph Campbell. Yeah. There's someone who experiences something that disrupts their world. Then they have to go on a quest to reset their world. In the process, they lose some things, they gain some things, they learn some things. But what I found with Barbie was that the film couldn't figure out if Barbie or Ken should have had the hero's journey, Mm. when in fact, America Ferreira's character should have had the hero's journey. She is the mother of the young teen who sets off the Barbie drama. And I, no spoilers here, but if if you've seen this film or not, what America Ferreira's character does sets off the action in the film. And towards the end of the film, she has a monologue that crystallizes the emotional stakes of the whole endeavor. Yet we know the least about her and she gets the least amount of plot. What did you think of that monologue? I thought it was delivered beautifully. Sam Sanders 
pauses before answering. <laughs> when I first heard it, I was like, yes. And then as soon as I began, and so I saw it twice first weekend because I wanted to have thoughts about it. And as soon as I talked to my friends whose opinions I respect and like to hear, we all were just kind of like, it's a little one-on-one. There was a version of feminism in Barbie that did not at all acknowledge how feminism can, needs to be different when it intersects with sexuality, when it intersects with race. This was a very queer-coded movie in which no one's actually publicly queer. What do you mean by that? All of the marketing for Barbie felt gay as fuck. And I loved it. And then I get into the movie... And the Allen character is, I guess, supposed to be gay. And Hari Neff, Barbie doctor, is a trans woman, but it's never spoken of. Mm-hmm. And they don't let Allen be gay. Kate McKinnon is almost the sphinx or oracle that sends Barbie on this quest. Queer-coded character. Let her be gay, too? I don't know. I, I was telling friends on one of my shows, Vibe Check, I was like, I would have loved this Barbie film even more if Barbie's whole quest was just figuring out that she's a lesbian. <laughs> and, and, and and Ken is actually gay and in love with Simulu Ken. Do you feel duped in a way? I don't way? feel duped. I feel like Greta did the damn thing. You just feel that there's a disconnect between the marketing and then the actual materials in the film. I also feel like you cannot make a blockbuster that's too gay. Why is that? Name next, one. Next question. <laughs> name one. Name 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 a blockbuster that's just like super fucking gay. Top Gun. <laughs> Touche. I'm leaning away from the mic because I'm laughing so loud. Touche. But no, I think that that movie one had to answer to so many stakeholders. You got to make Mattel happy while also kind of mocking Barbie. You have to make a blockbuster because everyone's been waiting for this film for years and it needs to be feminist. Mm -hmm. So like given all those constraints, she did a wonderful job. I think what I want to see next is an indie take on Barbie that is entirely intersectional and directed by and starring Michaela Cole. Let's do that. Sign me up. Yeah. Wherever I can invest stock. Yeah, yeah. That said, I love Barbie. It's a fun ride. But no blockbuster can fully address intersectionality. And that and 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 I get that. Hi Barbie. Hi Ken. Hi Barbie. Hi Barbie. Hi Barbie. Hi Ken. Hi Ken. Hi Ken. Hi Ken. Hi Ken. I got us both ice cream. Cool. Hi Barbie. 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 Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Oh, hi, Alan. There are no multiples of Alan. He's just Alan. Yeah, I'm confused about that. I want to talk about two stories this summer Mm -hmm. that I think represent the worst of Twitter and the best of Twitter. Let's do it. Let's start with the bad. Earlier in August, President Trump was uh, booked in Georgia, where he faces 13 criminal charges in the state's election interference case. He now faces 91 criminal charges across four jurisdictions. But this is the first time we received a mugshot of the former president. You first started covering Trump on the uh, NPR Politics podcast back in 2015. Yeah. I know you have moved away from politics. Yeah. I know you even moved away from Washington, D.C. Yeah. 
But what did you make of seeing this photo? Did you think this day would come? My general theory on Donald Trump, and I, I was on the trail with him during that campaign season, like following that man around for a while. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I, I survived. Um, once he won, I think pretty quickly, especially after the Russia stuff, which, you know, kind of went nowhere, I said to myself, he may or may not win re-election. He may or may not be caught up on charges, but he will never see the inside of a prison. I just don't think it's going to happen. And I feel like this mugshot lets people believe that he might. I still don't see how this man goes to prison. I don't see it. I mean, I think if any case is going to do it, it's the Georgia case because it's state charges and not federal charges. So if he were to win re-election, he could pardon himself of any federal crimes, but he can't do it for state crimes, right? So this is the case that could stick the most. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people who work in politics and who think about these things are pretty worried about the unrest that might be unleashed should he go into a prison. Sarah Palin said recently that if he were to go to prison, we could be entering a civil war. It's like when the toddler says, if you don't give me a donut, I'll, I'll throw a tantrum in this store. So I feel like, are we giving the right a donut? But also, I don't want a tantrum in this store. <laughs> I don't I don't want another insurrection. He listed himself at six foot three, 215 pounds. I did pounds. see that. <laughs> cute girl, cute. A lie or a Zembic? Imagine Trump on Ozempic. I think if he's 215, it's, it's got to be. He's not 215. <laughs> I do. It's like, you know, I wonder how 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 much I should think about these like image moments, like a mugshot of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Is it a big deal? Is it not a big deal? I don't know. I know I saw it today and I was like, whoa. But I, I don't know. At this point, I don't know what about Donald Trump needs to get a rise out of me. Mm -hmm. It's been years of this man just being a fool. You know what I'm saying? Of course. I have lost a barometer. <laughs> On, on any of this stuff. But I still think I'll never go to jail or prison. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the charges because Trump's arraignment came a day after he skipped the Republican debate, choosing instead to sit down with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson that was posted on X, which I'm almost certain is my least favorite sentence I've ever said on this show. I don't call it X. <laughs> That's what it said in the Times oh, report. I know, I know. But, but yeah, that, that, that was a hard sentence for you. I'm sorry about that. But um, let's play a clip that essentially amounts to a Trump allegiance oh, test. not the TV. For each of the Republican wow. debate. Why it's we, on a screen. Why don't we take a listen? You all signed a pledge to support the eventual Republican nominee. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. Just hold on. So just to be clear, Governor Christie, you were kind of late to the game there, but no, you raised I'm, your hand. No, I'm doing this. Look, <laughs> look, I'm doing this. And I know this. you didn't. Whoa, whoa. No. Come, watch and the look, would, would, look, here's the here's the bottom line. Someone's got to stop normalizing this conduct. Okay? Now and now whether or not, whether or not you believe that the criminal charges are right or wrong. The conduct is beneath the office of president of the United States. Okay, Chris Christie. The bar is on the floor. <laughs> the, bar, the bar is on the floor. Sorry, go ahead. For those who haven't seen the video of that clip, four 
instantly raised their hands mm-hmm. in support of Trump. Mm-hmm. DeSantis and Pence wavered for a moment, then and looked around, did. then raised their hands. Yeah. Christie made some kind of weird gesture with his pointer finger that was kind of a hand raise, kind of a nothing. And Asa Hutchinson technically kept his hand down. But if anyone watched the debate, it's hard to know what he did because he has a very ghostly-like <laughs> presence <laughs> on stage. When you watch that, what are you thinking about, especially as we are entering this election cycle come fall? It's performance art. Chris Christie acting like he can in any way take a moral stand against Donald Trump after working for Donald Trump and helping him get elected. Mm -hmm. It's just performance art. I think all of these politicians want nothing more than to win at any cost or be a VP pick at any cost. And what they say about Trump and what they reveal about their thoughts on Trump will only be what they think will help them win. None of them will say what they really think about that man. And that is a problem with that party right now because there's a conversation, the RNC, the Republican Party, they're in the party, have on a microphone and in front of a screen. And there's a conversation they have when the mics are off and the cameras are off. Mm -hmm. And it's been that way since that man won his first primary. And you've seen that switch. I've had off the records with these people when I was following Trump. And like, as soon as I turned the mic off, then it really came out. As a politics reporter at NPR in 2015 and 2016, you saw that switch happen. Yes. And there were a few who, like, I'll never forget. One night I caught Lindsey Graham at one of the early debates, I want to say in Vegas. And he let it, he he, kind of let Trump have it on my microphone. And that made it into the story the next day. But within two months, he was like kissing Trump's butt. Knowing that, when you see video like this, you can't look at it as an indicator of how they'll actually behave. You have to look at it as an indicator of how much they'll hide. That's what it is. That was Sam Sanders. He's the host of Vibe Check from Stitcher. You can find the rest of that episode and his program wherever you are listening to this right now. Next up, she's an actor, a director, and the star of Poker Face, for which she just received an Emmy nomination. Of course, I'm talking about the one and only Natasha Leo. There's so much in this episode that I wanted to pull bits from, but what you're about to hear is an early section of the conversation where she talks about how confusing her time was as a child actor and how she had to find her way back to acting on her own terms later as an adult. This is Natasha Leon. So growing up in Great Neck, I'm going to be honest, I never heard of Great Neck until yesterday. Great. Uh, but I think one of Neck. your f- first... Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes, dear. I think we done the show there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one, of your, one of your first performances you gave, as I understand it, was for the passengers on the Long Island Railroad. At your mother's behest, you would do a dramatic reading of stock tips from the Wall Street Journal. I'm curious, what did that sound like? Gosh, I wish I could still do it for you. This is like you want my old Shirley Temple material. Yeah, uh, see, I feel like I, you can channel this. I would need, I would need a paper. You know what I mean? Because you got to read off the names of the listings, and then you got to tell you know what's up, what's down. It's a trick I can no longer do. I did it for years. I remember like between the ages of four and ten, this was like my major uh, Yuri Geller sort of spoon bending magic trick. <laughs> is I would delight 
audiences of adults by reading them stocks. Did that parlor trick, did it make sense to you at the time? Were you just like, this is just part of who I am? (laughs) I mean, I guess, yeah. You know, so I'm born in the city. I feel like that's important because I lie about it often. You know, in other words, I say I'm from Manhattan, but I genuinely am, I swear to God. And they had this dilapidated mansion in Kings Point, in Great Neck, in Long Island. That your and parents told you Herman Melville used to live in. That he, They said, yes, Herman Melville. And then the New Yorker told me, go fuck yourself. It's not Herman Melville's house. I said, well, why would you destroy my childhood? Who cares? Like, I didn't know it was a fucking mess. And right. I didn't know they were pathological. Thanks so much. This is like discovering Santa isn't real. Yeah. I was the like New this, Yorker bursted. Yeah. And I was like, who else was claiming Herman Melville's? <laughs> Calm down, Moby Dick. Like, Why couldn't they just let you have it? Why couldn't they let me have it? You but, know what? Unsubscribe. Uh, unsubscribe. That's the New Yorker. Anyway. <laughs> that, that's, is that the tagline? <laughs> the New- <laughs> unsubscribe. That's the New Yorker? No, or just like, <laughs> we debunk your childhood. The New Yorker. Bursting bubble since 1907. <laughs> you thought your life was a mess. We're here to confirm it, bitch. You so, know what? It was just as bad as you said. Yeah. We talked to many people. We talked to many people. We found out it was worse. You know how you, <laughs> you had three things you thought that you could hang on? They tried to tell me at some point. They were like, we couldn't find your, uh, you know, so NYU skipped me my senior year. And I was going to be in their uh, film and philosophy program. I wanted to be a director. I wanted to read a bunch of fucking Nietzsche or whatever and then go write sort of Bergman, but funny movies about it. I'd already worked with Woody Allen. I talk about him a lot today because not enough people do right now. And uh, and you put T. S. Eliot in that essay, right, to get in. I did. Wow, you've done your research. The Hollow Men. The Hollow Men. And so, I guess Tish says, "Sure, come here early." And the point is, is that I never paid the tuition. You know, I never actually went. I just mm-hmm. audited classes for multiple semesters. And the New Yorker tried to tell me that I didn't, and I was like whoa, 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 this is Keeperman Melville, but I swear to God, I've been in that building like multiple times. Oh, man. I've taken Cinema Studies 101, and that's how I decided to leave. So what are you guys doing here? That was a real back and forth. I was like, I'm not in the thing because I never went to the school. So now I'm determined to get you know one of those honorary doctorates to teach the New Yorker <laughs> a lesson. Yeah, that, that will teach them. Yeah, that'll show them. Yeah, well, right? Here is a confirmed fact. Your first official role comes in Nora Ephron's Heartburn in 1985. I know it was a brief appearance, but you played a child asleep on some guy's lap at a wedding. And I'm just wondering, like, how much of yourself did you bring to that character? Oh, thank you. Was, was it deep method acting or was it challenging? You know, who knew that only 30 years later I'd be off off Broadway in a black box doing a play called Tigers Be Still. And also method acting, sleeping on stage when it said she sleeps. <laughs> it was a precursor. It was. And that's that's the nature of quantum consciousness. You know what I mean? Who are we in which moment? I barely know who I am in this moment. So, so it's <laughs> a challenge. When you did that role, did any part of that process make sense to you? Did it excite you to like be on set? Was it something you thought, well, this seems like kind of fun. I could do this. The child acting thing is so weird because, well, in the first place, I guess the good news is I was never a child star. I was <laughs> I was like a working child actor. What's weird is, of course, having spoken a lot and, you know, being friends with people like Macaulay Culkin, let's say, or uh, we all have a similar experience of my parents put me in this thing. Sure, I was somewhat charismatic and naturally inclined towards it. But then the weirdness of the fact that I'm so highly attuned as 
a small adult accidentally does have a sort of B-side that's inevitable. Not to speak to him, but to speak for myself. For me, in, in adulthood, I really had to come back to it on purpose. That was necessary because I was, for lack of a better term, you know, a natural. I'd never taken an acting lesson or anything like that. And back in my time, you know, a kid had to know tap and so on. <laughs> Kidding, but you sort of, I was like into that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like I liked the idea of being a song and dance man and like a, a street urchin. And a, I liked the concept, but the truth of like the inevitable, again, speaking for myself only, of having a fucked up family dynamic while that's happening, while you're trying to make money. And there are weird things, you know, like for sure my family spent the cash for sure, I'd be like embarrassed by behavior at work. So like actually doing, let's say, Pee Wee's Playhouse would be so fun, but the air around it would make me feel sort of weird or embarrassed, you know, of like having a parent there or just weird things like walking around like Times Square, you know, auditioning in like the 80s by yourself, weird. <laughs> Hoping your dad will pick you up. Yeah. And you, I, I, why don't you ask me the questions and I'll try to answer one at a time because it's wonderful that you know all this stuff and that I know you. And I'm down for the ride because I'm a sh one shrink short of a party at the moment. <laughs> so I'll take the free. This is what I'm here for. I'll take it. You have this quote about your parents who did seem like the driving forces in your early career. You said, even if they were ready to have children, it is kind of a wacky idea to put your child in business at six years old. I had to become coherent and a businesswoman at six by 10 I was a jaded professional. By 16, my youth was over and my goose cooked. I don't think they knew better. It was a decision of my parents built on hopeful ignorance. What is that hopeful ignorance? What did that look like? I mean, I think another way of, I mean, now I'm so, um, well, I'm a sick, 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 depraved person. But, you know, I'm also well, I guess, against my will. Uh, yeah, don't worry. I'll, I'll be prefacing that in the yeah, intro. Oh, good. <laughs> Or at least, you know, very high-functioning. I'll also add that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, and uh, I'm also tech avail if anyone has a job. Uh, that I'm going to leave out. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'm just wondering why I've got to get, get the good stuff out there. Uh, anyway, a book like, you know, The Gifted Child of Narcissistic Parents is really what that means, this sort of hopeful ignorance, meaning even if you have a kid at home who's saying, oh, I want to do blank, blank, blank. You know, you see it all the time with sort of Nepo babies, I guess, that the healthy ones, the parents were like, great, but you need to sort of finish school and we'll give you sort of a lot of the tools that when you, you still feel this way at 18, you can do it, meaning we'll encourage you in the arts and all these ways, but also we want to make sure that you're well-rounded enough to make that decision if you still feel that way at 18. You know, for example, who knows, maybe I would have said I... What I really want to be as a playwright or, you know, what I really want to be as a musician or I don't know. I don't even know that I ever said this is what I want to do so much as they were like, well, we're going to take advantage of the fact that you got this mop top curly hair and you like reading the paper out loud to people <laughs> and we're going to make some money off this basically. And it will realize a dream that we have by proxy of you being a somebody because to us, the value system is a thing that you as a teenager will decide is a very sick, warped value system. So by the time I'm 16, what I mean by all that, my goose is cooked or whatever, when we talk about the hollow men, or is by then I now had a working experience of what it meant to be in an industry mm. that valued 
things that were no longer aligned with my sense of meaning or purpose. I think that my parents' vision for it was one that was, you know, strictly about making it and fame. So for me, I spent about a decade aggressively trying to fail or sort of like dim my light as best I could to annihilate that completely. And then rebuilding that was very much about what would my version of this look like. That was Natasha Leone. Her new show, Poker Face, is currently available to stream on Peacock. Our next guest has been referred to as America's Sweetheart, the most normal actor in Hollywood, which sounds kind of like an oxymoron. And in 2018, as part of a poll from Reader's Digest, the most trusted person in America. Of course, it's Mr. Tom Hanks. Here he is talking about life before he became the Tom Hanks when he was just a preteen kid starting to fall in love with the movies. You know, we were trying to pinpoint the beginning of your love of storytelling, but I want to try to identify the beginning of your desire to be an artist, which I think happens at around 13 years old. You're lying in bed, trying to fall asleep the night before you go to see 2001 A Space Odyssey in the theater. That was it. I viewed it all as a very romantic quest, the idea of sailing across space in spacesuits and helmets. I was not enthralled in the adventure of it as much as I was sort of like in the beauty of it. And I had actually seen this book prior to seeing the movie itself. It's called The Making of 2001, A Space Odyssey, which I couldn't understand because I hadn't seen the movie yet, but it had photographs in it of the making of the movie. And knowing that I was going to see it, now understand in 19, I'm going to say this was 67, I guess, 67, 68. The movie came out in 68. Okay, so this is in the fall of 1968. We went down to the Cinerama domes. It was a big deal and had lobby displays and what have you. And it was the first time I was in a theater where I noticed that the sound system was the most advanced I had ever heard. It wasn't just coming from the screen. It was coming from all around us. And there was actually an overture. So I walked into the theater and it still lit up, but Ligeti's overture is playing. And when it began... I was used to movies as they had always been. John Wayne movies and Kirk Douglas movies and movies that you saw in Charlton Heston, you know. Movies had dialogue and they had bad guys and protagonists. So you never really, there was very, very little irony or mystery. Everything was spelled out for you. And here this movie unspooled and there isn't a word of spoken dialogue until about 27 minutes into it when a lady says, here's your level, sir. And prior to that, we saw the entire history of humankind played out via Stanley Kubrick's uh, vision. Now, that was, I'm 13, and I see finally and understand that cinema is this combination of light and image and performance and procedure and behavior. And I was able to figure out that what we were looking at was man learning how to use a tool. <laughs> in order to beat his way into getting what he wants. And then from that comes the greatest time cut in the history of cinema in which a bone is thrown up in the air and when it comes down, you're 30,000 years into the future and man has conquered space and is flying to the moon like it's relatively routine. 
And I can't say that I understood any of that movie when I saw it, but I knew that it was great and I knew that it had blown the back of my head off uh, as far as consciousness wise. But I reveled in every small, tiny detail of it, so much so that I went back the next week by myself in order to see it again. And I've been looking at it ever since because there is a story about as big as you're ever going to get that it that that is uh that is still nothing more than odd dialogue i mean there's no narrator that says and it was at that moment that moon watcher realized there's nothing like that in there the only the only uh supers are you know beyond the infinite that's there's there's nothing in there that makes it easy for you to comprehend what's going on outside after you saw the movie you said once i started asking this question how do i find the vocabulary for what's rattling around inside my head. Yeah, that the thing about being an actor is you're speaking with somebody else's vocabulary, but it goes through the sieve of your own consciousness. I gravitated to acting because I could get up in front of people like it was nothing at all. Other people can't do that. You know, I, I realized that that was a difference. And the vocabulary of communicating ideas by way of the first, of course, the words of a playwright. Well, it's one thing to learn the dialogue, but it's something totally different to understand what the heck you're saying at the same time, what it is that you're trying to communicate. And in some ways, all you need to do is trust the language. But something else happens that I learned about seven years later when I was 20 and found myself doing Shakespeare. Dan Sullivan, who at the time was directing us at the Great Lake Shakespeare Festival, got mad at all of the professional actors in the room because they were hung over from a party the night before. And he said, look, you guys have to show up on time and you have to know the text and you have to have an idea. I understood showing up on time because we'd get yelled at if we were not up on time. That's true. I didn't have a lot of lines to learn because I was pretty much carrying a spear and only had really one scene as an actor. But nonetheless, you had to know that dialogue. But the thing that he said about, and have an idea, that was new. I thought, we're told what to do, we're told when to move, we're told what, no, no, no. He was actually saying, you have to come in with something grander than is what is just written down on the page. And I didn't even know how to do that for another 15 years or so. But I understood that that was the difference between doing it professionally and doing it for the parks department. You had to do you had to do something more than just read the play and learn the lines. You had to study some aspects of uh, human need and human behavior and the particulars. I'm going to tell you right now, I played Fabian in Twelfth Night, and Fabian, I believe, is the worst role ever written in Shakespeare. And he is in one scene in which he and somebody else sits in a tree and laughs as Malvolio reads a fake letter. And Fabian has this line. The worst line in Shakespeare is this line. Souter will cry out on it, though it be as rank as a fox. Sam Fragoso, do you have any idea what that means? Souter will cry out on it, though it would be as rank as a fox? Sam Fragoso doesn't. I'm not sure what it means either, but I was instructed to say it as though it was the funniest retort you could possibly imagine saying. And we had to laugh our asses off after we said <laughs> <laughs> the story that you have to come up with, the idea that you have to have in your pocket has to be able to make sense out of saying a line that bad. So that's you at 20 years old. I want to understand about the ideas and questions rattling inside your head. 
looking for a vocabulary. A vocabulary of what? It was the vocabulary of <laughs> of playing it by ear, if that makes sense. I think I... <sighs> Not loneliness? Well, I filled up loneliness by being that guy who happily walked into the room. I did. I mean, I. Uh, but there's a combination between being, why are you lonely? Are you lonely because no one has paid attention to you? I can't say that was the case. I think I was, my loneliness came about because of confusion, because no one ever really explained to me where we were going or why. Outside of a couple of teachers and the parents of friends of mine, I'm not sure anybody ever put a shoulder, a hand on my shoulder and said, you know what, you're this has nothing to do with you and you're going to be okay. And all you have to do is trust your instincts. I just figured out that I had to trust my instincts. I knew people that would rationalize away any possible move or anything that, oh, I can't do that because I have a job or I can't take this gig because of that. I was a bit of a, of a blank canvas when it came down to people coming up to me, particularly at the Great Lakes Shakespeare Festival, in which people were telling me, based on their observation of me, they said, okay, if you want to be an actor, here's what you need to do. I never addressed the first part of their advice, which is, do I want to be an actor? Is it even possible to be an actor? Uh, who's an actor in this world? Well, they were. And they were telling me, you are too. And so here's what you need to do. You need to go to New York City. Going to New York City is only things that Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds did in motion pictures. I didn't go to New York City. I was from Oakland, for goodness sake. Maybe I'll get drafted or something like that. But so the, the vocabulary I was looking forward to was, I think, the vocabulary of options beyond the ones that were immediately around me. I Realizing that, oh, I can do that. The vocabulary of saying, well, let's see what's going to happen. After the break, more from... Wait, 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 hold on. Tom, want to take it? You're listening to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso. I'm Tom Hanks, and we'll be right back. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new data-driven way 
to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Coming back, I want to thank Tom Hanks for doing my job for me and just taking us to an ad break. Why we don't use that more often, I'm not sure, but a couple more passages here before we end 2023. This one comes from writer Hilton Owls. You've likely read his work in The New Yorker, where he's been a staff writer since 1994. He won the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism in 2017 for his work at the magazine, some of which has been collected in books like White Girls and, most recently, My Pinup. His latest project, however, was not a book, but an exhibition about the late Joan Didion who, um, thankfully, we spent a large portion of our time together discussing in great detail. Let's take a listen. One source of inspiration, both back then and now, is in the work of the late Joan Didion. Oh, yes. And I thought we could talk about her in this new exhibition you curated at the Hammer Museum called What She Means. Now, back in 2006, 
You interview Didion for the Paris Review in which she explains that, and I quote, Although a novel takes place in the larger world, there's always some drive in it that is entirely personal, even if you don't know it while you're doing it. Mm. Now that this exhibition is for everyone to see, I'm curious, what was that drive for you as you set about creating what she means? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Thank you. Um, I think that one of the real sort of salient points for me to make the show was to show a life evolving and that the life was so much about the development of a character, right? So there's this very smart person from Sacramento who goes to college and she starts to write or feel that it's all been said before, but she's continuing. This is Didion. Mm -hmm. And then she goes to New York and she's working for Vogue and she's having a pretty bourgeois. She's doing everything that's expected of her. And then she stops doing everything that's expected of her as she becomes a more serious writer and then moves back to Los Angeles during a time of great social upheaval. And I think it was that moment in her life that she became Joan Didion because she allowed for the fracture to be part of the story. Um, she was no longer holding it together and writing the perfectly constructed novel like Run River, her first book. She understood that her voice and her feelings and her thought and her ethos was really kind of in sync with the times that she was living in. And I think she had such an incredible facility to not only chart the times that she was involved with, but to understand that her body was not separate from this fracture, her thinking, everything that she had been raised to think and presuppose as a kind of bourgeois girl had to be um, jettisoned in order for her to be alive in the moment of her life, in this life. Didion, more than just about any writer from the 20th century, is returned to again and again, certainly one of the most. Mm -hmm. I wondered, why do you think that is? Because of the honesty of the voice. I think that when you, as she would say, put it, you know, cards on the table, I'm just paraphrasing, but, you know, you're risking the humiliation of seeing your name in print is what she wrote. But I would say it's the humiliation of seeing yourself. And when you risk that, you take your chances, right? You're not the kind of person who's going to keep your cards close to the chest. It's an act of freedom as much as anything else is to tell people who you are. They can't tell you. You've told them. Mm. It's a form of control, too. But I think she was very interested in how what did this vulnerability mean? What did this life mean without that self-exposure? She was someone that came of age as a Goldwater Republican. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to know that that definition is uh, very different now than what it was then. Then it was Republicans meant, you know, limited government interference in the life of citizens. That's really what it meant. And yes, there was conservatism, but there was also that aspect of it. And the Republicans have carried that tradition proudly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe my theory then is, as someone who came from this Republican household in Sacramento, she had these very firm ideas and understandings of, of the world that were, that were passed down to her yes. by her parents. Yes. And then life does what it does. Yes. And she has this kind of lifelong, ongoing public reckoning 
with herself and the world around her. Yes. And perhaps in those increasingly fractured times, people ran to it. I think they also found the necessity of her voice, right? I think that what she was brilliant at was articulating destabilization, how you become one thing based on assumed notions of the past. And this destabilization is a remarkable thing to live through. How do we live through it with language? Or how do we make language to talk about this experience? It's impossible to pick a single passage. I know. She's so great. That captures all her abilities and and, and interests. Mm -hmm. But I know this one piece, which comes at the beginning of her novel, A Book of Common Prayer, means a whole lot to you. Yeah, it does. Happy to read it. Chapter one, I will be her witness. That would translate sere su testigo and will not appear in your traveler's phrase book because it is not a useful phrase for the prudent traveler. Here is what happened. She left one man. She left a second man. She traveled again with the first. She let him die alone. She lost one child to, quote-unquote, history, and another to, quote-unquote, complications. I offer in each instance the evaluation of others. She imagined herself capable of shedding that baggage and came to Boca Grande, a tourist, una turista, so she said. In fact, she came here less as a tourist than a sojourner, but she did not make that distinction. She made not enough distinctions. She dreamed her life. She died hopeful. In summary, so you know the story. Of course, the story had extenuating circumstances, weather, cracked sidewalks, and paragorina, but only for the living. I think that's such a remarkable piece of writing, and it says so much about how life is, for those of us who are reading the book that she's writing, you know? It's a beautiful piece. It's also a piece about self-delusion and and how this country produces Mm -hmm. dreamers. And incidentally, Didion both on the page and in your time with her seemed to make a dreamer out of you. And yet the greater irony is that as inspiring as she was, I imagine you had to, like all writers, unlearn her voice Mm -hmm. in order to find your own. Yes. I don't think I was technically influenced by her, but I was certainly influenced by her interest in writing about women in fiction. Well, she, I mean, a lot of people don't read her later stuff, which is unfortunate. But if you look at novels like Last, The Last Thing He Wanted, uh, Democracy, these are all kind of romances about women who don't fit, who are away or outside of the status quo, despite money or fame or whatever. And I think that one of the things that I love about her writing is this search for continuity, even though she knows it doesn't exist, in particular in the, in the fiction. And her essays, of course, I loved finding out that James Baldwin was one of her favorite writers, and they do stand side by side on the bookcase for me because of not only their voices, which are extraordinary, but their ability to take the political and to make it not only just personal, but a narrative. That was writer Hilton Nails. 
The Didion exhibition he curated is called Joan Didion, What She Means, and it's currently available at the Perez Art Museum in Miami, Florida. I believe they have plans to move the exhibition to multiple cities in 2024. Do not quote me on that, but I believe that's true. If it does end up in a city near you, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is unquestionably some of the best three hours I spent in 2023. As Hilton noted at the end of that section, Didion's ability to blend the personal and the political was really one of her greatest gifts as a writer and essayist. The same could be said about our last guest today, novelist Zadie Smith. We sat around the publication of her newest book, The Fraud, which is now available wherever you do your reading. But the personal and political, and the interplay between those two, and the relationship between those two, ended up kind of becoming the heart of this conversation. The thing we kept coming back to and turning over and interrogating. We asked these big central questions around what the political efficacy is of making art. How progressives seem to so often fail to recognize their own hypocrisy. And then probably most broadly, how do we live a life of principles instead of, as Zadie says, a series of public statements? This is unquestionably some of my favorite 20 or so minutes of tape from 2023. And in my view, a pretty fitting way to end this year. Let's take a listen. about that great quote from Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. She wrote, there are years that ask questions and years that answer. It's beautiful. That period of, of moving to Rome, then, then Boston, then New York City, I wonder if, if you were starting to discover some answers for yourself. It was just great to get out of this parochial context, to learn a different language. That's an incredible thing for a writer. Like, you just... It's like you see around the edges of what you do into a whole different universe. I, I don't speak Italian well, but just to have it is, it made me understand translation and it was just huge. And in Italy, I just decided to, um, I don't know if you're allowed to say this, but just like devote myself to pleasure. Like I worked so hard my whole youth when other people are like having fun. I was writing books and then in Italy, I was just like, I just want to live. And it was fantastic. You know, it's a fantastic place to do very little. Why would you not be allowed to say that? Um, I don't know. I I'm such. I come from such a Protestant culture, and and um and it was such a privilege. Like, who the hell gets to just sit in Rome and not do very much? But I didn't do very much. I didn't. I ate and drank and talked to people and had fun, and it was kind of great. And I just learned a lot about beauty. And like, my husband's a you know, Northern Irish Protestant, which is the most Protestanty Protestant you can get, apart from perhaps Scottish. Top, uh, yeah, top Protestant. Yeah, and um, is he okay? Yeah, he's good. But he also in Italy learned like some of the lessons of Italian life, which is like you know, enjoy yourself. Things are beautiful. Like, don't rush everywhere. Sit, have a coffee, chill the fuck out. <laughs> and that's what we did. It was good. You did eventually find yourself back to the page, though. It was yeah. not, not like you, not like you ran away entirely. No, but I remember the moment I was sitting in Tuscany at this lady's house and she runs a writer's retreat, but I wasn't doing any writing there. I was just sitting around and the phone rang 
and it was Bob Silvers from the New York Review. He wasn't ringing to talk to me, he was ringing to talk to this woman, Beatrice Retsori, but I answered the phone. And he was like, who is that? And I was like, oh, I, I'm Sadie. And he was like, Sadie Smith? I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, are you interested in Kafka? And I was like, what? <laughs> and I had never, like, all the time in England, if anybody asked me to review something, they would only ever ask me to review books about multicultural London, like, over and over again. Mm-hmm. It was that kind of, not that I have anything against them, of course I wrote them, but the idea that I had no other concerns in the world was so English to me. And for the first time, this American was saying to me, are you interested in something else? And as it happened, I really was interested in Kafka. So he said, well, why don't you write? He said, see what you can do. How about 4,000 words? And so for the first time in Italy, I thought, oh, maybe I should do some work. And I wrote that essay, and that kind of just changed everything. It was for the New York Review of Books that yeah. you wrote that piece on uh, Forster. Yeah. That was in 2008. Yeah. And I have, I have a passage from it here where I think it seems like you've started to develop that idea of of good writing requiring good being. Puke, yeah. I don't believe any of that anymore, so I'm not going to defend that for one second. <laughs> That's a young person's foolishness. Okay, well... Um, <laughs> it's moralistic and it's it just exhausting. Well, let's, let's, let's interrogate what you okay, did here. Okay, go on, what did I say? Uh, this is what Forster said. Oh, God. Do we, in these terrible times, this is not you, don't worry, do we, we? I do have quotes from you. We can do that too. Right. Do we in these terrible times want to be humanists or fanatics? I have no doubt as to my own wish. I would rather be a humanist with all his faults than a fanatic with all his virtues. Well, look, that is a good quote. But the argument is what, what does humanism mean? And at the moment, it means to a lot of young people just some kind of neoliberal cover story, some woolly bullshit about how we're all the same, blah, blah, blah. So... You can think that that's humanism, and there is certainly a version of that. That's the version sold to you by uh, particularly corporations, right, that, in their adverts and in their... Mm-hmm. That's the general human they're trying to sell to. But there is another humanism, which to me is radical and socialist and is interested in finding a collective category in which you can perform acts of political solidarity. Can you unpack your definition or one that actually matters to you? Look, I would say it's about having a kind of Angela Davis talks about it a little bit. You need to have a bracketed sense of yourself as a a political citizen. So it's absolutely the case, particularly in America, because of the way your politics are structured, that you need to gather in identity groups in order to pressure government for rights. That's how America works, and that's not going to change. But it is important, I think, to know that that is not the only way that politics can function. Mm -hmm. At moments where you are... I'm thinking particularly about like the wave of AI that's about to come at us or also the literal wave that is coming at us through climate change. If you don't have a radical collective idea of the human, you're splintered in the face of the wave. That is my problem. Can you explain that? You're going to have to find a way, just as they did in the 19th century in the battle against slavery, to say, I am a Manchester cotton worker. You are a sugar worker in forced laborer and enslaved person in the Caribbean. We are not in the same situation, exactly. But we are working under the same system, which is a system of capital. Mm -hmm. Can we work together, even though our situations are not perfectly analogous? To do that, you need some conception of your human situation under this power structure. And if you say, no, we can't work together because you can't exactly comprehend my situation, I can't exactly comprehend yours, the only person who wins from that is is capital itself. This seems like you're you're hinting at the uh, 
You kind of reminded me of Chappelle's line, the the imperfect allies. Yeah. It's okay to have imperfect allies. It's not a compromise. It's not it is a way of making politics work. You did just accidentally kick me. Was that because I'm 29 and I represent <laughs> no, a younger generation? No, no. And that's the even that's the most of all the stupid binary dialectics. <laughs> like, if you're young, you are going to become old. Mm-hmm. So that dialectic is it literal insanity. There is no point screaming about how awful the old are. It is coming at you so soon. So we might as well find some. That's a classic example. Some way of communicating that isn't. A war. Well, I think we've done a good job so yeah. far. Uh, you said recently, I can't emphasize how quickly people much younger than you are going to find you utterly absurd. I know you never believe it. No one believes it. Everybody thinks, yeah, but I'm young in a new way that will never mm-hmm. age and, and I will never. But it, 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 it just always happens. So you might as well get ready for it. Yeah. Good writing requires good being. This was something you said for many years, and, and you think it's absolute yeah, I, nonsense now? Yeah, I think it's absolute nonsense. 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 D- does writing make you a better person? Or, or No. Okay. Are you a better person because of writing? No. Sorry. I just, I don't, I, that's not my experience. Okay. Because these were all feelings you had and sentiments you had before. Yeah, because I was, yeah, when you're in the world, part of the kind of simplicity, when I was young, at least, I can't speak to other young people, but when I was young, the ethical area that you're dealing with is really small. So if you wake up in the morning, like if I'm 24 and I'm writing novels, all I have to do to be a good person is get up in the morning, have my breakfast, write my book, maybe <laughs> hang out with my friends and go to bed, right? The ethical area is really small, so it, you can really do it. The moment you add more people, partners, kids, dogs... You have two kids, right? Yeah. The ethical area immediately... What's that thing they sometimes say... Um, online like just be good it's not complicated (laughs) it's so complicated it's quite hard yeah it's so hard and the more people involved being good to one person of course means perhaps not being good to another rights and duties are in constant tension so it's just something you maybe don't know when you're 24 but you becomes radiantly clear the older you get that the ethical area is so complicated that the hope of being perfectly good is you know of course you can hope it but it but it really is deeply delusional Parenting is just so um, humbling and destructive of your sense of yourself as some great person. It just, it destroys that, unfortunately. She says, staring at me, (laughs) knowing I'm 29 with no kids. No, but I don't know. I I never felt I was a particularly great person. So that's not something, it's not like I'm falling from a great height. But um, (laughs) the only thing, what I do is not giving. I, I write, which is for me. People who actually are outward facing and are constantly giving of themselves, like actually doing that, are to me the admirable people. You know, in fact, beyond the personal reasons of making art, you've written pretty extensively about the perceived political power and the, quote, necessity of storytelling. Yeah. Because throughout the pandemic and through lockdown, many people were making the case for art's nobility, its capacity to change us, to enlighten And yet, in an essay from your book, Intimations, which was written, I think, in the throes of the pandemic, you seem to have a very different view, at least when it comes to the work you've been making for the past 26 years. Can we take a look at that? Sure. Don't sound so excited. (laughs) Let's have a look. Okay. Oh, boy. Yeah. Here to here. Okay. The more utilitarian-minded defenders of art justify its existence, by insisting upon its potential political efficacy, which is usually overstated. Artists themselves are especially fond of overstating it. 
But even if you believe in the potential political efficacy of art, as I do, few artists would dare count on its timeliness. It's a delusional painter who finishes a canvas at two o'clock and expects radical societal transformation by four. Even when artists write manifestos, they are, hopefully, aware that their exigent tone is finally borrowed, only echoing and mimicking the urgency of the guerrillas' demands or the activists' protests rather than truly enacting it. The people sometimes demand change. They almost never demand art. As a consequence, art stands in a dubious relation to necessity and to time itself. It is something to do, yes, but when it is done and whether it is done at all is generally considered a question for artists alone. An attempt to connect the artist's labour with the work of truly labouring people is frequently made, but always strikes me as tenuous, with the fundamental dividing line being this question of the clock. Labour is work done by the clock and paid by it too. Art takes time and divides it up as art sees fit. It is something to do. Do you know what? I want to say something. <laughs> it's occurred to me on this tour recently that I, I think what it is when I listen to other artists talk, they, like, they use the words radical every other word. They're constantly stating these apparently progressive arguments. But then I know about them like, I know their kids are in private school. I know that I, it just really blows my mind that people have literally no shame about this rhetoric that has no relation to their lives, particularly in America. They continue to live these like hawk bourgeois lives. And then, so I've never said, I, I never speak like that because embarrassing I realize my life is actually in the commons like I I have a case what do you mean by that I mean I I try and live like some of the things that I really believe a society should be arranged I I don't I don't know I mean my my parents had their kind of moments of activism when I was a kid and and so I connect that activism with actually going out and doing it like they went out and marched and they were involved at a kind of grassroots level. So that's the thing I take seriously. I, I just cannot take seriously people speaking as if their very existence is just radical. They're just radical because they are alive mm. and willing to give you their art. I can't. I find that really hard to, to take seriously. It sounds like the part that's rubbing you the wrong way is that you have contemporary writers that are acting like politicians. <laughs> Maybe... I, or I at least speaking in public like they're I, politicians. But that's what I think. I realize that in the age of the algorithm, politics is something that has to be legible. So because I haven't said, I am this and this is what I believe, I think I've allowed people to assume politics that I really do not engage with. But I always assume that, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I just And does that bother you? No, that, it doesn't really because I, I want, the lesson I took from my parents is, do you want to label yourself you know endlessly in your armchair or do you want to get on the streets and actually change people's minds so to me the arguments in my books are they're open enough that people can enter hopefully they enter and something happens it's funny the, the very thing that i probably love most about your work is that it does feel inviting and that it's yeah. not, not particularly dogmatic and perhaps in the absence of clear definition others especially on the internet have maybe tried to define you and your work for you yeah and i realized that they have no idea like where i come from or the people i come from because i never said but that's because i believe in privacy <laughs> like right. i'm not i just don't understand this kind of public facing person who's a series of statements i, I can't engage with it but it, it just surprises me that people think making radical work is saying my work is radical <laughs> 
that's not what I think radical work is. I think radical work is radical work. It does something radical to you as you're reading it, to the way you think and to your, the formation of your ideas. As we leave, we're trying to sift through a whole lot. Yes. <laughs> very big ideas. Right. And the truth is, as you were talking, I, I couldn't help but shake that headline that came about from a recent Vulture review. I think it was how Zadie Smith lost her teeth, which did take issue with your politics, or at least how you think of politics in relation to your work. What did you make of that? I mean, I do slightly take issue of being judged of the level of my black radicalism <laughs> by by uh, someone who, who um, isn't in that tradition. And also, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to put it. I just... What? I I think what do I think? Oh God. It's about the principle of hospitality. I think that's like even like that kind of ancient Greek idea that the, the door of prose is open. Like I, I so remember when I was a kid, like we used to hand out the socialist work and all that kind of stuff, and there was always this idea when you're dealing with like upper middle class intellectuals, they have this idealized proletariat figure in their mind and of course that was we we were the <laughs> we're the people we we were there waiting for the and i remember particularly with my father like watching the way they would talk to my father that there's this disappointment that the proletariat when you meet them mm. isn't using the same language that you're using right doesn't fully embrace the marxist discourse in his language is worried about his rent and his food maybe doesn't have the same aesthetics as you and and i was always um struck by that. And even when I got to college, it was more intense, right? That, mm. that there's this kind of leftist movement and the inconvenient thing is that the people they speak to, they don't really like or, or understand. So I come from somewhere else and I do think I both like and understand the people I grew up amongst. And I'm not ever willing to just shut the door on them because their language isn't correct or they're not thinking in quite the way that I would wish they would think. I'm trying to find common ground. And to me, common ground is not a middling space. It's like a radical space. It's a space you can share in common. The commons is the thing that concerns me. Back in 2000. Yes. You went on uh, Charlie Rose. God, yeah. That's the only time I've been on television, twice on Charlie Rose. Yes, I've, yeah. seen, I've seen them both. Yeah, that's it. And then after that, I was like, I never want to do this again in my life. <laughs> well, you, you did just fine. <laughs> you had a quote in that first one that I wonder if it's still true for you. You said, empathy and voyeurism are kind of two sides of the same thing. You have to like looking, and then once you've finished looking, you have to make an effort to understand. Does that still ring true to you? Yeah, that's that's my kink for sure. I like to watch. I, I like to watch people. I like to watch their lives. Um, I wasn't going to say kink. But no, yeah. but it's fine. I don't mind. That's truth. I, I'm really voyeuristic it's deep in my nature and i know it is and yeah i guess the problem people have is the idea that in understanding people you forgive them it's all very christian that kind of idea and i your husband says you have to do everything in your power to not be a christian <laughs> that's what he said um but you know when i was writing this book looking at these radical socialist christians who were some of the greatest anti-slavery campaigners, Thomas Spence, Robert Wedderburn, who turned from Christ, but then spoke of 
correctly that when you get into the social gospel, what you're being asked to do there is beyond any Marxist fantasy. It's like you're being asked to give every single thing that you have to the weakest and poorest in front of you. So there is certainly a radical gospel, but no, I'm nowhere near anything like that. But understanding doesn't have to mean approving, but I think that the really hard thing, the difference between me and perhaps younger writers is that whether I approve or disapprove of the people in my novels is not the point to me. This was your point around tar. Yeah, is, that, is it interesting? Just, yeah, it's just it's a serious difference. Of course, I have my personal views, and but that's not the beginning and end of of when I'm critiquing something. I just, you know, like I'm reading Virginia Woolf's diaries now, and I I love Woolf, and sometimes she's an arsehole, and I can just know that. I, do you know what I mean? I just know mm-hmm. that. Sometimes she's a fucking arsehole. Yes. So that's that. It's not, I'm not condoning it. I'm just, it's just a fact. It's okay to contain <laughs> more than one idea. Like you can just have have it and know it. And you think my generation is not capable of holding no, all those no, ideas? No, no, I think they absolutely are. I know they are. But I you re- think they do the beginning and ending thing, that it begins and ends with their own personal politics. If, no, if I you're... don't think that either. I, I think that dumb people are like that, but I've written, I keep reading really brilliant novels by people younger than me all the time and brilliant criticism. And so it's not, a, I don't believe in like some kind of generational trait. Mm. It's always that instinct is in every generation of like shutting down at a certain point or, no, I don't believe that. I'm just talking about my particular interests, which just don't stop. They just keep going. I can't help that. You know, 18 years ago, yes, you interviewed author Ian McEwen in the Believer magazine. Oh, yeah. He was about 57 at the time. Is this the meaning of deep dive? Is this what's happening here, Sam? Is that what you like to do? <laughs> I really understand it now. You were skeptical in the beginning. Yeah, I know, but now I'm like, whew, it's intense. It's amazing the things you've managed to find. Go on. He was about 57 at the time. Yes. And toward the end of your interview, mm. you asked him what it feels like to look at your own bookshelves and this nice little backlog of work, this little stack, you said. I don't know what that would feel like. Amazing, I would think. Does it give you any pleasure, though? What did he say? Well, I'm a little more interested in what you would say now. Because, you know, when we started this conversation, you said, I've been on book tour, and people keep bringing all these books to me, and I don't know how time has moved so fast, and... I yeah. never imagined having all these things written that you have spent your time on and, and, and your life invested in. I just, it's weird. Like, I, you know, when you're young, you come to destroy the generation above. Like, I came to destroy Ian. I love Ian, but I came to destroy him just as he came to destroy the generation above him, just as young novelists come to destroy me. That's like the natural ecosystem of literature. And if it doesn't happen, it's not healthy. So I'm so used to coming to be the destroyer and now... I'm here to be the destroyed, and it's just a weird feeling. I don't know. It's weird. I did these books. I'll probably do some more. Um, And what I do notice about the writers I came to destroy is that you feel a kind of new fondness for them. You see new things in them, and which which I like. And I hope I feel that way about my work as I get older that I come around to it again. But at the moment, I'm still like full of beans, man. I'm kind of excited to to do something new. Have they given you pleasure? This one gave me a lot of pleasure, satisfaction, and yeah, like like I didn't know if I could do it, and I I did it to my own satisfaction. That's the best way I can put it. Mm. 
And then last night when I was signing, people came up talking to me about white teeth. I was so moved, like a book I barely remember. And it was so nice, like kids coming up and talking about reading it. And I still felt quite disassociated, like it's not, I couldn't remember writing it. But I thought, God, that's so nice. It's just out in the world being with people. What an incredible thing. Do you want to know his answer? Oh, yeah, go on. He said to your question, does it give you pleasure? It's like a family album, the consciousness of your own past. People say what you were doing in such and such year, and I know exactly what I was doing. I know I was publishing a particular book or halfway through another one. These books are the spoonfuls with which I've measured my existence. Yeah, that's exactly it. And uh, I don't know if that's a normal thing to do with your life, but that's what I've done. It's, it's okay. Is it okay? Yeah, it's actually, it's it's good. Yeah. I mean, I I personally feel that relations with human beings are more important and I treasure my friendships and my loves and my children and all of that. But it's not a, not a bad way to spend the day, not at all. That was Zadie Smith. She's the author of books like White Teeth, Intimations, and most recently, The Fraud. You can listen to that episode or any of the episodes we played clips from today at talkeasypod.com. You can also listen to those full conversations wherever you are listening to this right now. Before we go, I've been doing Talk Easy since 2016. And one difficult part of doing a show every week, there are a few difficult parts, but one especially difficult part, and something I don't talk a lot about on the program, is that if you do this work long enough, some of the people that I've sat across from pass away. And I'd be remiss to not pay tribute to one of my favorite guests in my seven years of making Talk Easy. He came on many, many times. I'm, of course, talking about the late Norman Lear. He passed away in early December at the age of 101. He is probably the only 101-year-old that left us much, much too soon. What can I say? He was more vibrant in his triple digits than I am at the end of my 20s. His contributions, of course, include All in the Family, Good Times, Maud, basically the television that you were raised on, or at the very least, your parents were raised on. But when I think about his legacy, I do think he will live on through all the people that he championed and supported, all the shows he produced, all the careers he made, all the young people like me that he believed in before just about anyone else did. I still remember that first time I sat with him. It was in 2017 or 2018, I think. I couldn't have been older than 23, 24. I had never met him. I went to his office with two microphones because in those days we didn't have a studio. And I remember I walked in and he was yelling at the TV, which undoubtedly featured Trump, who had just done something terrible, which narrows it down to checks notes uh, every single day of his four years. So I can't remember the exact day, but what really mattered was his spirit. Norman, in that conversation, if you, if you heard it, or even in our conversation in 2020, which was around his 98th birthday, he had a warmth to him 
a curiosity to him, a generosity of spirit that was unmatched, a joy and a love for being alive that made you want to live more. To know Norman was to know a man who knew the power he had and knew how to use it. And I mean that in the best way. He, he knew what a word of encouragement could do for someone. And he did it again and again. I saw it with people in my life. I saw it in my life. He opened doors for people. He stayed in touch because he loved people that loved doing what they do. And I mean this. I do not think that we would be making this show today if not for his support, if not for his love. And that is the thing that he will leave behind as well. The year ahead, I uh, am not going to use this time to scare anyone. <laughs> I think we know that it's going to be hard and taxing and emotionally exhausting. I don't know how exactly we're going to do it, but I think we have something to learn from Norman. This is a man who, <laughs> he bought one of the few original copies of the Declaration of Independence. He's someone who literally fought in World War II for democracy, spent a lot of his life doing political work and, and humanitarian work around democracy and on behalf of this country that he believed in. That's what he had more than anything. He had belief. And I don't know how we're going to manage through 2024, but I do know whatever stamina he had, whatever belief he continued to hold to the very end, that is what we are going to need. He will be so missed. I don't know what we're going to do without him. I really don't. But um, I'm so grateful that we got to pass through at the same time. And with that, we will do just as he always did and continue onward. His three favorite words in the English language, he always liked to say this, his three favorite words are the same ones I will end today's show on. To be continued. Stay safe, and I'll see you in 2024. That's our show. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Kira Posey, Tara Machado, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, Greta Cohen, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to this special New Year's Eve edition of Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week. Until then, stay safe and so long.
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.